Welcome to the Harvest House Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, you can find us at harvesthouse.live. of the American church, that we within the charismatic movement are 
has been geared towards what is God doing. It's the demonstrations. And we have a tendency within demonstrations to stop short of Him. Because the other thing you find in Exodus 33 that I love so much is He says, Show me your ways that I might know you. So what Moses understood that the children of Israel struggled with was the idea that everything that God does is for the point of demonstrating who He is to us. And if I can be honest, I've probably spent more time studying, praying, contemplating, arguing, debating, whatever, why God does things than maybe anyone else. In my life, I've probably spent as much time studying that as anyone else. And I can say, like, when I say why God does things, that can be really broad. Like, that could be why He heals people, or that could be why He pours out His Spirit. But what what is the difference? If you've never wondered this, you're, I, I don't know if you're just not alive, or if, you, um, if you've just kind of been content to say, like, really? Really? Chicken, chicken? the reality of it is you, you rarely ever, if ever, find purity as a prerequisite for proximity. Rarely, if ever. In fact, I was talking to Josh about this last night. You've gone on.
Why would we tell a God who has no ability to sin, thank you for not sinning? Actually, part of the, the idea of holiness, it's not just that he's wanting to restore. That is what uh, a great part of it means. But part of the original meaning of the idea of, of him being holy, that they circle and cry out, holy, holy, holy. They're not saying you don't sin, you don't sin, you don't sin, you don't sin. What they're saying, that word holy, means unique, peculiar, unlike anything else. That's the, the, the actual root in the Latin. That's what it means. So what they're saying is that the nature of God is so unlike anything else in creation that the best we could hope for is that we could represent or somehow cast forth that image again. So they're not telling him he is pure and holy in the sense that he is sinless, because that would be pointless. That would be like telling somebody um, who, I don't know, that would be like saying, I'm not, not going to be giving examples, that's how sinful I am. Just know that doesn't make sense. Okay? For those of you who are keeping score, just in case you noticed, that was called this one.
that I'm not saying heaven and hell. I'll say this because we are listeners right now, so I better be careful. I'm not saying that there's not a real place called hell. Let's be clear. But it wasn't until Plato that heaven became a destination for the afterlife. Because prior to that, what he actually taught was that heaven was all around you and that heaven was a what they called a thinly veiled place that surrounded you. All you need be to access the presence of God or Him was to pierce the veil that was only a hand away from you because heaven was there. Plato took God and heaven and put it to something that you might or might not get depending on how you do here. When initially what God said is, I want to surround you with my presence and heaven and all you have to do is be willing to realize it, to be aware of it, and to tap into it as it's around you. He never wanted his, he'll never leave you or forsake you. What do you think that means? Even in the depths of Sheol, I'm with you. What do we think these things mean? How can it be that he's there with you in Sheol if he's there in heaven waiting on you if St. Peter lets you through, depending on which one you believe? So what he's trying to do is he's reframing things to where we recognize that our some of what is a flawed doctrine has got to go so that we can actually realize that it's not the struggle here to get a reward there. He wants everything that is there to be here with you because he is here with you and he's everything that matters there. And everything that is there, that is, there's no sorrow, there's no, uh, there's no weeping, there is fullness of joy, there's all that kind of stuff that it talks about that we sing about in heaven and that are, are, are we eulogize. What we have to recognize is those things are only there in the first place because He's there and they're part of His nature. They're fruit on the tree of our Father. And so what happens is when He comes, the fruit doesn't stay there. So He actually says we get to experience This morning, what we're going to look at is this idea of what does it mean that we would, to the next level, that we would begin to recognize what He has done and allow that to frame who we are. So, as we said, signs, and I'll give this example as we go into this. So, we said, Moses said, show me your ways that I may know you. So, everything, let me say this, I'll probably just drill this for the next few minutes to get used to it. Everything he does is to show you who he is. Everything he does is to show you who he is. Why? Because we don't know who he is. Our idea of the nature of God is so messed up. We think that he sent Jesus in an angry sense to die on a cross because he was in some petulant retributory God that was just mad and somebody's got to pay. God doesn't work that way. We think that God decided that because you did something wrong that he's going to punish you and now all of a sudden you aren't going to be able to serve him in that capacity. That's not how God works. We think that the way God does things is is defined by, by um, a sense of we did good, now you get a reward. And I'm not saying that there's not a 
measure of reward for doing well. But I also think if you think that's how, like I remember as a kid wondering, okay, if I do, you know the wild and crazy thing that I was taught to do when I was a young boy. Listen to my chubby chuckles. So whatever it was that I was doing at that, I remember thinking, I remember when I first found out what I found my thrill on Blueberry Hill meant. And and I went into, I tore my clothes and I was in sackcloth and ashes for weeks thinking I was going to miss the rapture. And this was the only stuff I was allowed to listen to. That's Sandy Patty. Sandy Patty was okay. I couldn't do Amy Grant because she would gyrate in those tight pants. So whenever you find the thing, whenever you find the idea uh, uh, that that this thing kind of comes and he says, you don't really know who I am. And I mentioned this on, on Thursday night, but do you realize that the, the truth of it is, do you know who, the tr- who it was that told the insurance companies that tornadoes, floods, fires, and hurricanes are called acts of God? The church has done that. And so we tell the world that the acts of God are acts of devastation, and then we tell the world that he's good and faithful, and we wonder why they're confused. Deer goes through your windshield. Hopefully you have your visor down. And and the, I, the thought immediately is, are you somebody that goes, well, that's just an act of God? That's what the world thinks. We literally told the world that things like Katrina, it was okay to say that Katrina was judgment for gays? Seriously? Are you kidding me? Do you know how many people have told me the reason that California was on fire is because Hollywood's going to hell? Do we really think that's who he is? If we don't, then we should probably stop saying it. My answer was, when I was told what in the world's going on in Florida, they've had three hurricanes. And I know all the Christians go there south for the winter. So Boca Vista is full of them. Please tell me there's not one more place in Del Boca Vista. So when you're talking about what it means for us to define the nature of God, the way I described this was when God does something, it is a sign. The Bible says that. It's a sign for us. So signs work this way. So there's an extra sign. We don't have this. Uh, we, we, probably, we probably should. Hope and the Radiant Bank Forum Committee will come up with our, our signs that we need. But what, we don't have a sign. We don't have a sign over the door that says exit, but imagine that if we did, if we had a sign over the door that said exit, when, what, how much sense would it make that you walk to the sign and then stop because you've seen the exit? The sign points to something, and even though the sign is real, the exit going through the door is more real. A sign points to another reality. Signs from him, miracles from him, 
restaurant that's there. You've heard of, let's say, Bridges. You know, you want to go to Bridges or you want to go to um, uh, to one of the Mexican restaurants. You get in your car, you drive there. As soon as you pull in and see the sign, you turn around and go home because I've seen the sign. The sign is real, but it points to something that's more real. There's a reality that exists on the other side of that door that that sign is pointing to. It's not the door that's the point. It's the reality that the door brings you into. And so if it is that he is a God that showcases himself in his ways, we have to remember the point of his ways or his acts or his signs is always to show him us him. And every time he does something in our lives, I don't care if it's miraculous healing or provision or something that's totally different, we should look at that and say, God, help me to see this for more than just a miracle because you're good and you do miracles. Help me to see it as a reframing of your nature. Jesus had a very unique way of dealing with his disciples. To understand this, we have to start with the awareness that these weren't by background definition great men. The disciples were not, I'm going to say this again, the disciples were not special, they were not smart, they were not holy, they were not Christian, they were not good people. Sorry. If you think you look for people with halos, you need to put down your children's Bible. Because that's not what happened. He looked for people who were willing to believe something that was crazy. So what you find in the midst of this environment is that that subtle thing that we do is even something that he wants to deal with. In fact, what you find is that in moments of weakness, in moments 
Jesus would be exposed as a completely different tradition. In fact, you find Peter saying repeatedly that he wouldn't deny the Lord. He could not possibly believe that he would deny the Lord. Why? Because he didn't see the fracture. However, what happened is, at that moment, he denied the Lord. And, and uh, let me just say this as a side note. I do not believe that he denied the Lord because he was in fear. You've been taught that the re- reason that Peter denied the Lord is because he was ashamed of him or he was in fear. I don't believe that for a moment. I think that's completely contradictory to Peter's uh, makeup or his attitude that you find. Peter had just got done trying to cut someone's head off, fighting off the Roman army to protect Jesus in the garden. Do you think now that he's sitting around a fire with a bunch of Yehus that all of a sudden he got scared?
cracks of the code, excuse me, is that every time we are in a pressure situation, we withdraw from people. Maybe every time we're in a pressure situation, we criticize ourselves or go into shame and condemnation. Maybe every time a pressure situation comes, we blame people around us for things and we lash out. So those are fractures. So what happens is he doesn't cause those fractures, but he does cause his weight to come to identify them so that we can confess them. And confession then releases the capacity for us to forsake the nature of those fractures and embrace who he is. But I think we've got a really, really, really messed up idea about confession and repentance. If you think the purpose of confession and repentance is to keep you out of hell and get you into heaven, you've missed the point. Confession is simply us coming into agreement with what he said. Say that again. So I, I'm just going to, please don't get stuck here because this isn't the point of the message, but, but just note this in your head. Confession is actually just you coming into agreement with what he says. We go to God and we confess and repent and we, we pour over it and we say, oh God, you know, help me. I'm not saying that there shouldn't be
thing to the nature of God that the people around you are going to come. The truth comes is your nature. You get to demonstrate the nature of graciousness because His nature is perfect. You get to demonstrate the nature of forgiveness because His nature is perfect. You get to demonstrate the nature of love. Of you being the one who lays down your life because He demonstrates that. And so in the midst of this, He uses these things not to identify things to beat us over the head and certainly not just so that we can get cleaned up again, so that we can go back out and get our shirt loaded. He's trying to invite us into an exchange whereby we can forsake confession empowers the ability to forsake the mindsets that aren't the way he thinks. Mark chapter 8. just got done multiplying loaves and fishes. Okay? He just got done uh, multiplying loaves and fishes for the second time. And in the midst of this, he then takes all the disciples, they go to this boat, and Jesus begins to talk to them. So I'm going to give you the, 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 the cliff notes, the bullet points of this in Mark chapter 8, verses 10 through 21. Um, and, um, and we'll just probably jump down starting at verse 13. He left them and entered into the ship again
in many ways, sometimes it's easier to believe for something when you're working with nothing than when you're working with black. When you're talking about the Lord. I mean, if it was something where they had no food at all, and Jesus just said, oh, I can take care of that. But he actually took something that was blatantly not enough. I mean, like, not even close. Do you realize that it rose and switches miracles? Both times, so there was uh, 5,000 to 7,000. In fact, the time that it had, there was uh, less people, he actually caused there to be, he worked with, excuse me, more people, he started with less loaves and fishes. And there was more left over. More people, less to start with, more left over. Makes no sense. That's just how he does it. And do you realize that the times that he's talking about the thousands and how many there were, that it was kind of men only. So some of the scholars actually believe that there was closer to 30,000 people there.
so when you're talking about what it what happens that when the spirit comes it creates a level playing field and i'm telling you that religion hates it hates it when that happens so religion comes and now all of a sudden we count everybody why because everybody is counted and so up to this point oh i, I sorry another thing do you realize that part of that the point of that is because he's trying to bring us into family to such a high degree that we actually get the fact that he didn't Jesus didn't teach you to pray my father who is in heaven how does he teach you to pray our why because you can't get there without the person next to you not talking about heaven you can't get where he wants you to be on your own Furthermore, do you realize that even the mind of Christ is never something that's, that is intended for an individual? We have the mind of Christ. Why? It is a collective language because it's supposed to speak of the fact that when His Spirit comes, it raises the tide so that it floats all boats. And that people are going to come in who have no idea what they're doing, but their hunger being the only value that matters will bring them alongside people in Christianity for years. You better deal with that. I was telling Tosh today, do you realize how proud I am of the, of the way that God has done things and that so many churches grow by just having something better to draw people from other churches? Intentionally. As mega, well, I mentioned this last Sunday, as mega churches have increased, do you realize that church what does that mean? That churches are going out of business because people are leaving small churches and going to big churches. And we say church is growing. That makes about as much sense as me transferring money from my checking to my savings and thinking I'm wealthy. Within the way the kingdom dynamic works, he's going to bring people in and raise the water level. And it brings people back to Because the point was, when God is doing a miracle, the boy who is completely insignificant in their culture is just as important to the story as the Son of God who multiplies the ways of fishes. He did it to prove a point. So he does this, and, and following this incredible story, incredible story, is that he are then on the ship with Jesus and they're sitting back and they're thinking this is this is like you know the follow-up thing. I don't know if you've ever had like you know some awesome, awesome thing happen in your life and the next day you just get out of the boat. I don't know, they probably you know Jimmy Buffett or something and and they're they're you know just out on the high seas. Staring away to Margarita. Whatever it is that makes it Celebration time, and Jesus starts asking them questions, and he looks at them and he says, "Hey, 
don't eat of the leaven of Herod and the leaven of the Pharisees. And they go, Because in our culture, when somebody asks you a question that they already know the answer to, there's always sarcasm that's implied. We think that that's how God works. You ever had somebody ask you a question that you know they know the answer to, and you know that they're just asking that question to make you feel good? I hate that. I hate that. I hate. I mean, I just hate being stupid. I've had people ask me before, you know, whatever it might be. Did you think that was a good idea?
says to them this really interesting thing. Perceive you not, neither do you understand. Has your heart been hardened? So he asked them next, is your heart hardened? So imagine he's asking us to do it. Is your heart hardened? And they're like, I didn't know that it was, but apparently it is. You know? They kind of go, I, I don't know. Let's say at this point, Jesus, can I just pass? Or phone a friend. I have a lifeline. Because he's asking them, and immediately we think, okay, we're going to fail this. But what he says to them that's really interesting to me is, is your heart hardened? Don't you see or perceive or understand? And I think part of the reason that he says this to them is, is he's bringing them into perceiving not neither do you understand. What he's actually asking them, how do you not perceive, how are you not seeing this? And then he says, is your heart still hard? So he's saying, okay, you're starting with black. Then he says, how is it that you're still not seeing it? Why? Because of what I've done before. And is your heart still hard? And I love the fact that he does that because he's not being in any way condescending. He's not being shameful. He's not being in any way something to make us feel bad. But he's just simply saying, is your heart hard? And he's eliminating fractures in my makeup so that I can come into alignment with how he thinks. He's not asking me to shame me. He's asking me to invite me into how he thinks. The shame game says he asks you so he can make you feel worse about your inadequacy. The father we serve says he asks you so he can illuminate a fracture that you didn't know was there because weight has come and has illuminated a fracture. And then he says, "Do you is your heart hard in this area? And you go, well, I didn't know that it was, but it is. Then you can, in confession, forsake that thing and say, Father, help me to see how you see and come in line with who he is. That's the point of the questions. So he then says three more questions. So I'm all about the questions. Okay? So he asks three more questions. Can you see? Can you hear? And do you remember? Now, to me, this is really important. So he asks them, can you, and the way in verse 18, well, just in case you want to look at it, it sounds condescending. That's because... the people who translated it were condescending. That's about the easiest way I can say it. God bless those But they, you know, I don't know if you've read any about the, the people who labeled and translated the Bible, but that wasn't exactly the most loving environment at that time. I mean, which is why they did stuff about burning witches. So, when you look at what the translation says, it sounds like he's being condescending, and he's not. He's literally asking them and inviting them in. He's simply saying this, and I, I'm gonna, I, this is the last point we're going to make. But he's asking them this. Do you see? I really don't. Do you hear? I really don't. I just have a hard time hearing. Like, I know that it's there, but I don't hear it. And then he says this, the most important
even though you can't hear it like I hear it, if you can just remember what I've done for you before, it will activate your sight to see like I see. Even though you can't hear like I hear, if you can just remember what I just did, don't you know that that thing will activate your hearing to hear how I hear? He, he, these, these, are, these are very sincere questions. Do you hear? No, I mean, imagine if you were asking one of your children, what would you like your work to do them with their homework? And you simply ask them, do you understand? They say, no, I don't. Are you just going to say, well, that's because you're stupid?
we're dealing with now, these things that he is illuminating to us, they're not there because he's hurting us. They're not there because he's, he has abandoned us. They're not there because we have failed. He literally says to us, I know you have failed, but I still want to invite you into something that I think you are. I made a note here. It's really interesting. When the weightiness comes, he actually then brings us into this opportunity where we can be a person that says, God, I blew it. So this is how we would think. God, I blew it. I messed up. I've totally, I've totally ruined it. I failed. 
pushing us past the borders of what we thought was possible. And there is no promise that you will forget. Help us, Father, to remember the promises. Help us, Father, to allow the nature of who you are to demonstrate to us the nature of what you're going to do. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Harvest House Church. For more information, find us online at harvesthouse.live.